remote working is becoming more and more a fact of life. But, you know, there are some concerns that you might imagine employers have. And so what we uh, what we are is really a tool for employers to use that you know, gives them the confidence um, to allow for remote working. Brad Miller is the CEO of Awareness Technologies. And that tool he just mentioned is a piece of software called InnerGuard. InnerGuard makes it possible for companies to monitor their off-site employees, the ones that don't work in the office. InnerGuard can log keystrokes and take screenshots. Time-wasting programs like iTunes can be disabled during the hours of 9 to 5 or to infinity. With InnerGuard, a boss can even access the video camera and microphone on an employee's laptop without detection. We all want to believe everybody works remotely exactly as hard as uh, they would if they were in the office, but employers have a duty to supervise their employees and make sure that they're uh, working productively and our software just enables them to do this. So on one hand, you can talk about Big Brother. On the other hand, if I'm an employee that wants to work remotely, you know, I'm probably willing to make that trade-off. Your boss can always see what's going on on your desktop. How just freaky is that? That's David Heinemeyer Hansen, a programmer and one of the co-authors of Remote, a book about remote working. Companies like InnerGuard are seeing phenomenal growth, David says, because more and more businesses are allowing their employees to work outside of the office. But, he insists, these businesses that are turning to spyware do not understand how remote work works. I mean, I would not want to work anywhere where I have a 24-7 supervision from some boss sitting and, and watching my every movement on screen. I think it also just portrays an unrealistic expectation of how work happens today. Remote is David Heinemeyer Hansen and his co-author Jason Fried's second book about work. David's also a partner at 37 Signals, the company Jason Fried founded, and the company that built Basecamp, a popular project management tool that makes it easier for remote workers to collaborate. Fun fact, David did most of the programming for Basecamp working remotely in Copenhagen. My entire lifestyle is predicated on remote work, so for me it's just incredibly personal. After the successful launch of Basecamp and David's graduation from school, he decided to move to Chicago, where 37 Signals and Jason Fried are headquartered. And I started coming to the office. And the first thing we noticed was I got a lot less done. The office is just an interruption machine. Um, the office is simply a place to bother people incessantly. You don't have a work day anymore. You have work moments where you get 15 minutes here, 45 minutes there. Maybe if you're lucky, you get an hour and a half. Well, most creative work doesn't happen in bite-sized chunks like that. You need long, sustained periods of uninterrupted time to make serious progress. David left Chicago for remoter pastures, and a number of employees followed suit. David says there's even one guy at 37 Signals who travels around the world working from his laptop. Jason and David believe that we will all eventually be working like this. And Remote is a guidebook to help us make the most of it. Sometimes it can sound like a dream. 
Like, oh my God, I can just not wear pants. I can just stroll around my home all day in pajamas and, and just work when I want to. It, it, it sounds like uh, too good to be true, and, and it is, because it, it doesn't work like that. Um, you do need some form of routine. We have a lot of employees who have all their own sort of special things to get them into the mode of now it's work. Uh, some of the funnier ones are um, Noah, one of the guys that we have, uh, when he gets up in the morning, he, he wears his home slippers. And when he's ready to go to work, which means just go into the, the room uh, right next to his, his bedroom or whatever, he puts on his work slippers. Like it's not about making yourself uncomfortable. It's not about putting on a tie just because you're working from home, but it's about just mentally making the transition to and from work, uh, because then you can go out of it too. It turns out that remote workers are much more likely to work all the time than slack off. But bosses who encourage this behavior, David and Jason warn us, will end up with burnt out employees. Married people, especially those with small children, make the best remote workers. Single people can pull it off too, they just need to make sure they spend some time around other people. Otherwise, they'll crack. This is why you see so many people working in coffee shops. It's like the new office where people can get stuff done without interruption from their co-workers. big realization is that the social interaction that we as humans need do not need to come just from the co-workers we happen to, uh, to work with. Of course, remote workers need to spend some time with their co-workers, and they do, thanks to technology. It's technology that makes remote work possible, and it's technology most of us are already using. It's email, it's instant messenger, it's uh, collaboration tools like Basecamp, like we make for project management, um, Google Hangouts, uh, video chat. There's a lot of software packages that are aimed at making teams more productive, even if they don't sit next to each other. We have something uh, called Campfire, which is our virtual water cooler. It's a chat room where we all hang out, the entire company, all 40 people, in a chat room, uh, and we're there all day. Wait, 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 wait. Um, okay. Uh, campfire sounds fun. You know, I'm sure it's a blast to hang out all day and share uh, funny links and stuff. But how is this different than InterGuard? Because... At the end of the day, you have this real-time log of who is doing what and where and when. I mean, isn't this just the friendlier, uh, happier spy program? Technology always has this flip side of it can be used for good or for evil. All of these uh, wonderful tools we've got in Google Hangouts, Campfires, Basecams, Email, IM, and so on. They, um, they're wonderful because they allow us to, to collaborate even though we're sitting remotely. Well... Of course, there's always going to be this one jerk who, who says, well, if we can use all these tools for collaboration, maybe we can also use them for spying on our employees. Well, I think what's really so liberating about remote work is that it puts the focus on the work. If you stop caring about when people are at their desk in their chair in the morning, whether they come in at 9 or 9.15, if you just care about what is the work that got done, if you can look at an employee and you can look at the output that they have and you can say, that was a good day's work, then it's so easy not to care about any of the other bullshit. It's so easy not to care about whether that guy went to the mart and played with his kid. Maybe that's why he made such a, a good contribution that day. Maybe that's why the work is so good. If you switch your focus and your quote-unquote 
surveillance of people away from the person and to the work of that person, oh my God. I mean, it's like the sky's opening. The artist Ignacio Duarte hasn't worked in an office in years, but you could make the case that he is still on the clock. I do uh, something that you might call office art. It's um, mainly in the medium of drawing, animation, paper installation, graphics in Excel, and a couple of paperworks and things on pinboards and PDFs. It might look quite minimalistic, but it always, always has a strong relationship to work. I enjoy working with Excel a lot. I've done quite a few drawings that, that are based on formulas or also just even using um, the little formatting palette that Excel offers you. I'd really like to use uh, the tools that a, a regular office employee would, would use. Many of my work start from a minimum creative moment, let's say uh, when you are in a phone conversation and you start to scribble subconsciously. I often take these little moments and turn them into art pieces. Let's say with a scribble I have a different series of works where I just scribble in a very methodical way. I often make spirals and uh, well, one single line that covers a whole page. In one occasion I... Um, I recorded the sound of it, the sound of the making. And uh, it's a triptych in black, blue and red, like the basic colors of the big universe of this French pen manufacturer, Big, And, uh, and it's called uh, Big Monochromes. I got to see this piece, Big Monochromes, when it was on display at the Drawing Center in New York City. It's really an incredible work of art. When I put on the headphones, I could see, hear and feel the boredom, repetition, frustration, and loneliness of the office. One thing that I like to do that is a bit mean is to uh, take these little creative moments and uh, convert them into a very structured activity again. You could call it a meta-routine. So you, it becomes something very similar to, to work. What used to be or what was in the initially something like an escape from work suddenly becomes a very work-like activity. Ignacio never set out to be an artist, but he never set out to work full-time in a beige and gray cubicle either. So art school offered the possibility of something else. I always thought I have no artistic talent, which I actually don't in the traditional sense. I'm not capable of drawing a man or something. So that's why I never thought of becoming an artist. I never saw it as an, as an option because of this lack of talent that I saw in myself. But I always was very interested uh, in the passive way. Uh, I was checking out exhibitions all the time, was very much into art history. Even though Ignacio was much older than his fellow art students, he felt like he had the advantage because he knew exactly what he wanted. He studied script writing and filmmaking. And after graduation, he moved to Berlin with his girlfriend to start living the creative life. But within weeks, he found himself once again working in an office cubicle. 
So it was absolute, absolute failure. I was in this full-time position, a terrible job in an American corporation. It was pure suffering. And um, I did that for two more years. And those years were the ones where I, where I found my this extreme motivation to, to, to find a way out. This is when Ignacio Duarte started making office art. When I started making art, it was sort of like a mirroring of the, of the experience I had had the same day in the office. The Sisyphus type of work, this doing to undo again, this, this, I mean, what is a work routine? What is a routine to start with? It's an it's a activity that gets repeated periodically. So that, those, are, were, those are the ingredients of everybody's work life. You have a certain schedule to fulfill, etc. And those are the ingredients that are always present in my work. The, the, the idols I had were, for example, Kafka, you know, the fact that he always stayed in his job and really makes you understand where he's at and may, really makes you identify with him because we probably have all experienced this kind of suffering, you know. Well, a few days, of course, I, I did uh, do art during office hours. After a few years of this, Ignacio got a residency, a paid residency, to work full-time on his office art. He immediately quit his job. I was the happiest man on earth when I left my last job. That residency was just the beginning. Ignacio now has gallery shows, museum exhibitions, famous collectors seek him out. But he says there are many things that remain the same. What I'm living now is the fantasy I had back in the day, to finding a, a creative talent that allows you to escape from work routine. Having said that, uh, the reality I'm living now is starting to work at 8 and staying till 7 or whatever, you know, <laughs> and working Monday to Friday, you know, <laughs> because it just seemed normal to me. I didn't want to be the cliche artist that breaks out of the office and just does something really crazy. I wanted to work from, I wanted to talk and work from my own petit, petit bourgeois experience and from being locked up in this cage. And it was like opening the, the doors of a cage and deciding to stay inside and, and, and draw the bars of it. Even though Ignacio Yorte uses office tools to make office art, and even though he keeps the same studio hours as when he toiled away in his cubicle, his artworks present us with evidence that art and work are two different things. Art has this great advantage against work. In work, everything has to be functional. Efficiency is quite important and everything has to have a meaning, a direct meaning that you can translate either into money or uh, material benefit, let's say. And art has this incredible advantage of not having to be productive at all. You can just do whatever you want to do. And that is a huge danger because I use the same tools to do something totally unproductive, which puts maybe things even in question. And uh, that, of course, is dangerous. If, if you show people that Excel is a means that you can use to make paintings, then this is quite a danger for bosses. I mean, they might forbid Facebook, but they definitely can't forbid Excel. Okay. What do I need to know here? Well, 
I have a new podcast, and I'm calling it Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. Okay. And when it comes to us, I'm hoping that we can just keep doing what we've always done. I call you up every now and then, and you tell me what you're doing. That sound okay? Yeah, that works for me. Great. So it's been a while. Uh, what are you up to? I have been consulting for a web filtering company. Oh my God, I knew it. You're working on Prism. No, no, the company I've been working with just does porn filtering. Oh, that's better. You're, you're just helping the Chinese government censor democracy. Dude, I'm going to pull up the China logs for one of our products. Let's see. Okay, top five search terms. In China, boobs, bad girls, doggy style, Szechuan lollipop, top party member orgy. Okay, you got to go down to like number... 100,000 before you see Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International. I'm not even doing international though. The client I'm working with right now is the IRS. Wait, you're installing this on government computers? I don't think this will really come as a shock to you, but porn filtering software is pretty much installed in every government agency. Because the workers just can't can't help themselves. Oh yeah, it's it, the list is long. I mean, the IRS is like the sixth agency that I've done. I mean, started at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, went to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Parks Department, the U.S. Forest Service. <laughs> hey, you laugh, but I'm telling you. This stuff has been installed in pretty much every agency. I mean, all the all the way to Guantanamo. Really? Yeah. In fact, I'm working with one of the guys who did the install at Joint Task Force Guantanamo. But I, I'm a little confused. I mean, with all of these high-profile hackings in the news, why would the government be focused on installing porn filtering software rather than, say, I don't know, security software. All of these supposed hackings, that's really just desperate people searching for porn. Oh, come on. The New York Times got hacked by Chinese hackers. They were not looking for porn. Okay, the New York Times servers were broken into. But what you don't know is that this only happened because someone was looking for porn. All right, now now you're losing me. You're going to have you're going to have to spell this one out for me. Okay, so you remember the guy I was telling you about? Uh got the guy that did the Guantanamo install. Okay. The other night after work, we went and had a few beers, and this guy told me the real story about the New York Times hack. It was not the Chinese. Who was it? Ali Muhammad Balu. Who? Ali Muhammad Balu is a prisoner in solitary confinement at Guantanamo. Um, okay, maybe I'm stupid, but it, it seems to me that it would be, you know, kind of difficult to do some hacking while you're in solitary confinement at Guantanamo. Well, according to my friend, he did it with a Nubia. Uh, I don't know what a Nubia is. A Nubia is a Chinese-made 
smartphone. Um, but how does this guy get his hands on a Nubia? So Ali Muhammad Baloo is in solitary. Uh, the only people he sees are the guards. And there's one guard who works the night shift. And he's been working the night shift for about four months. And this guard is totally pissed off when they installed all the porn blocking software because, you know, this is what he would do at night to pass the time. And he complains about this to Ali Muhammad Baloo. So Muhammad Baloo says, I'm really good with computers. So if you can get me a computer, I think I can get around the filters. Now, you know, it's Guantanamo, right? The guard knows he can't bring a laptop in there. So the guard goes and buys this Nubia because it's a powerful smartphone and it has a big screen. And he slips it to Muhammad Bullet. And does he get past the filtering firewall? Oh, yeah, he cleared that in like 10 minutes. But the guard thought, you know, like doing this pack would take all night. So he's got this cell phone, this, this smartphone, Nubia, all night. So wh where does he go? What does he do? He goes to the New York Times website. Why would he go there? Like he has like finally can go anywhere. Why would he go there? He wanted to see what the paper was writing about Guantanamo. Now, all this happened before the hunger strikes and before Obama mentioned it in that press conference. So Muhammad can't find anything, nothing. So he figures, well, maybe there's something in the archives. So he tries to go to the archives, but he quickly hits the 10 article limit. He hits the paywall. <laughs> yes, but he's not going to sign up for an account. He doesn't have a credit card. So he hacks into the site yes and once he got into the system he realized he had access to all the staff email accounts he went looking for someone who might be writing about all the people like him who've been cleared for release cleared of any suspicion of wrongdoing but were still stuck in guantanamo and this is why the people at the new york times thought that the hack came from China. But I, I don't understand. Why didn't he write someone? It took Muhammad Baloo like four hours to find someone who he thought might be interested in Guantanamo. And according to my friend who checked out the browsing history, the phone died just as Baloo was opening a Yahoo account. It's a Chinese cell phone. Of course the battery sucks. Even though waiting in line is an essential part of the human experience, there's no such thing as a universal cue. You never can tell where you're going to get one of these clashes of cues. Dick Larson is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His favorite story about the clash of cues takes place at a Hong Kong university 
in the ladies' room. They were lined up in front of the sinks as the door opens. The one waiting longest would go in. And then a woman comes in that, they, that no one had recognized before and goes right to stall number three and parks herself there and stands there as if she owns that door. When that door opens, she's going to go in. Well, a near riot broke out. It turns out that the woman who came in, the stranger, was from mainland China. In mainland China, the tradition in the women's room is you have separate lines in front of each of the stall doors. And in Hong Kong, with first come, first serve from British tradition, you, stay, you line up as a single queue in, in, front of the, in, in front of the sinks. Dick Larson is internationally recognized as an expert in the field of operations research, or queuing theory. My nickname is Dr. Q. I went to see Dr. Q because I wanted to find out how the American Q works. Most members of society agree the person who's been waiting longest should be served next. Thank you for calling. The American line is rooted in the classic British first come, first serve Q. Please remain on the line and your call will be answered in the order received. And many U.S. businesses, Dr. Q told me, used to pride themselves on implementing these serpentine lines. There used to be a bank in New York called Chemical Bank, and they used to claim that they were the first ones to have that. In, in, in their bank lobbies. Wendy's is very proud that they're the first ones in fast food that had the single serpentine line. American Airlines is very proud that they claim that they were the first ones to have single serpentine line in airports. But today, Americans are waiting in a new kind of queue, a priority queue. Priority queues means that certain customers get higher priority than others. Most of the priority queues Americans wait in are invisible. We don't ever see the people who wait behind us or get ahead of us because of technology. You know, in the U.S., when we call a brokerage firm or a travel agency or a bank, these are usually priority queues. And based on the answers to a few questions that they give you at the, initially, they'll put you to a server who is qualified and best suited to handle your call. Please enter your account number. And... Uh, I don't think people perceive this as, as, as unfair. Perhaps you have other businesses you'd like to chat about? Using the Blue Preferred Access Lane, we invite our Dividend Miles Chairman, Platinum Gold, our Silver Preferred members, and Starline's Gold members to board. I first realized that the priority queue is changing the American experience of waiting in line at the airport. In American airports, priority queues are visible everywhere. At the check-in counter, security, the boarding gates. Many airlines now board their passengers according to the amount of money that they've paid for their ticket. And we'd like to continue boarding using the red general boarding lane. We invite zone number one to board. Americans have a deep-rooted belief in the market. And since priority queues can generate revenue, it's no surprise that they're turning up in the public sector as well. But are traditional American values like fairness and equal opportunity really compatible with letting someone buy their way to the front of the line? And what happens when people who pay more want more? America's already suffering from extreme polarization. Is it really a good idea to mess around with systems that further divide citizens into haves and have-nots? Let's go find out. Since this is a full flight, unfortunately, I am going to start checking bags. I flew to Atlanta, Georgia to visit Six Flags Whitewater, an amusement park with giant water slides like the Tornado and the Bermuda Triangle, and lots of people waiting for their turn to run. Welcome to Flash Pass. But thanks to my nifty bright yellow Flash Pass, I didn't have to stand around. We would like to take a moment of your time to explain how the system works. 
the whole purpose of our product is to not have people standing in line. So the guests still wait in line. They just don't physically have to stand in line. Tara Morandi is with LoQ, the company that designed the RFID-powered green and yellow flash pass wristbands. Both allow guests to virtually queue. In other words, I can doggy paddle in the wave pool until it's my turn to ride. Well, scan your band again on the sticky. All right, you good to go. And I got the yellow wristband, which gave me priority. Not only did I get to virtually queue, but my wait time was half that of all the wristbandless guys standing in line, baking in the hot sun. And I'll confess, I was scared to ride the tornado, but I was more scared that one of those angry-looking guys might think that I was cutting the line. It's not a coincidence that Six Flags picked really bright yellow and really bright green as the wristband colors. Loki installed the Flash Pass at Six Flags Whitewater in the summer of 2011. It was a pilot project. Six Flags was concerned that their guests might reject the idea of yet another fee. Amusement parks are expensive. Parking, lockers, food, admission, it all adds up. But the Flash Pass was a huge hit. Guests lined up to pay twice as much to avoid the queues. Six Flags is now installing the Flash Pass system in all of its American water parks. You know, you can have an experience where you spend most of your time waiting in, in line for the park. You still get to ride five rides, but are you eating and enjoying a meal with your family? Are you relaxing in the sun? And I think that's where it comes down to. People are paying for their time, and that's why we're successful in the park. Six Flags Whitewater is on the outskirts of Atlanta. If you're driving, you might take Interstate 85 part of the way. In October of 2011, the Georgia Department of Transportation created a flash pass for I-85. Drivers with a peach pass can now, for a fee of course, get out of traffic and ride in a special lane all of their own. Metro Atlanta, keep moving. Get your Peach Pass today. So here's the start of the lane that we cannot be in right now because I don't have a Peach Pass and, and uh, I won't get a Peach Pass. If Chris Haley had a Peach Pass, then he'd be able to drive in the hot lane. Cameras would electronically track his car and his bank account would be charged accordingly. But even though he can afford it, Chris Haley chooses not to. And on his blog, Stop Peach Pass, he actively lobbies against the hot lanes. That's just not where I want to spend my money. Uh, but for many people, that's just simply not an option. To spend $120 a month to commute, you know, that's, that's the difference between them being able to make their electric payment or, or rent, you know, so they're, they're certainly not going to choose that option. Now, in order to make room for the hot lanes, the Georgia DOT took out the carpool lanes on I-85. So overnight, all the cars with two people in them were pushed into the general traffic. This made traffic worse for drivers who chose not to pay. Uh, my typical uh, daily routine was that I would drop my daughters off at the bus stop that's just a couple houses down, hop in the car and start my commute, and usually arrive uh, to work 35 minutes, 40 minutes later. But the very first day that this was implemented, my commute was an hour and a half. And then it was like that the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And it went on for weeks. You know, like other people, I ended up slowly adjusting my schedule. And for me, that meant I had to give up leaving my daughters at the bus stop. The Hot Lanes officials claim rush hour commute times will eventually return to normal. But Chris Haley says they're not taking drivers like him, drivers who commute earlier and later, into account in their studies. You, you can't improve the level of service in one particular lane on a fixed 
corridor like this without degrading the service in the remaining lanes. So by offering the choice to a few who want to spend money to, to have increased service, you've decreased the service that the rest of the population is going to have. Yeah, but look at this. We're, we're coming to a, a standstill, and we're watching these cars fly by in the hot lane. It does seem that like I'm making the choice to be a loser by sitting here. <laughs> I think it's, it's really a, a false choice um, to, to say that this hot lane or priority service gives you a choice because I essentially live close to an entrance point to the highway, and... Um, I work right off the highway. There's only one effective way for me to get to work. There is no choice. Chris Haley's not the only driver who thinks Georgia made a bad choice with the hot lanes. I would say that the popular reaction has been overwhelmingly revulsion. Critics often use the phrase Lexus lanes to describe the hot lanes. Ariel Hart is the transportation reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and she told me there's truth in the name-calling. I am much more likely to find a hotline driver who is driving a Lexus, or, you know, the very first one I ever found was driving an Audi. Describe what we're about to do. So about to get in the hotline. So exciting. Here we go. Ah, so, so luxurious. Graphic designer Clint Keener totally rejects the idea that the hot lanes only benefit the rich. And as we roared down I-85 and his Ford Focus, he pointed out all the fancy cars stuck in the congested general traffic. Oh, look. Oh, there's a BMW. Oh, there's a new 5 Series BMW. Oh, my God. They're so poor. Let's see. What other? Oh, there's a Mercedes. There's a little Acura. These, these poor people in their Mercedes can't, can't compete with my Focus. Clint Keener believes that the real solution to Atlanta's traffic problems would be an investment in rail. But he refuses to suffer in traffic just because the state can't get its act together. For him, it's a matter of choice, a hellish commute or the hot lanes. I really don't think they'll ever, ever make trains ever. I, I think that's just, they would never do it because they're too hard-headed and don't see what we really need. But so be it. I want everybody to boycott it so there's nobody in my lane. I like choice. I like being able to go around all these crazy people in traffic and get to work on time, fresh, not stressed out. To me, my time is worth money. My time is worth a dollar. An hour out of my day is worth a dollar. It's basically as simple as that. According to Georgia State Senator Kurt Thompson, though, a typical Atlanta commuter would have to pay a lot more than a dollar a day in order to use the hot lanes. Because it can be especially expensive during rush hour, it can cost you about $7 to go from one end of my district to the other end of my district on this road in a hot lane. At the end of the day, you've got to have the money. As we toured his district in his antique BMW, Kurt Thompson made the case that the state should cancel the Peach Pass. The hot lanes, he told me, are un-American. This is not about improving traffic times. It's not about improving the non-attainment issue about our carbon dioxide emissions from our cars. It's just about giving options to people who can afford it. So what it does is it creates this, what I call the politics of envy, because it further separates us between the haves and the have-nots. And it's not that there haven't been, you know, rich people, poor people, but we've always prided ourselves on not being so stratified. And we never had, our founding fathers never had this idea of, I got mine, now you go get yours. That's not anywhere in, in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the 
Declaration of Independence, nothing that you that could even be loosely read in a poetic sense as I got mine, you go get yours, and if you can get yours, you can have the stuff I got too, is not anywhere in it, in our founding documents. But that's what this creates. Well, here we are. We're almost at a complete standstill. I mean, you, you know, you've got, you, you, you know, you can, you could afford maybe to get in there. Are you really telling me that you're going to spend the rest of your life sitting here, stalled in traffic? You're never going like, to wake up one day and say, "That's it." No, I'm not. You know, we have a saying: if if you um, if you feed a stray cat, you have a cat. I went back to the water park for another visit. This time. I didn't get a flash pass. And you know what? It wasn't as much fun. It's not like I had a bad time. I rode some rides. I did some more doggy paddling. But waiting in line stinks. I knew everyone with a flash pass was definitely having a better time than I was. And while Six Flags has done an amazing job installing Low Q's virtual queuing system, it is not invisible. When this group of five teenage girls walked past me, flaunting their yellow wristbands, knowing that my wait time was twice theirs, I couldn't help myself, and I muttered at them under my breath. And that's when it hit me. It is impossible to implement a priority queue without destroying what is probably the only real benefit of waiting in a good old-fashioned line. That sense that we are all in this together. Offering people the choice to buy their way out of the line creates a first class and a second class. Maybe priority queues work just fine in other countries, but here in America, there is evidence that they are degrading our common experiences and our basic services. On Spirit Airlines, the more money you spend, the more service you get. Sure, you can choose not to pay any extra fees, but well, good luck with basic service. They don't even serve you a glass of water unless you pay a fee. Never fly on Spirit again. Spirit is soft. And while Spirit may be one of America's most unpopular airlines, it's also one of America's most profitable airlines. What's next? Will we be standing unless we're willing or able to pay extra for a seat? I'm just trying to get to L.A. For Waypool? It's the first day of the fall semester at Santa Monica College, one of California's premier community colleges. I'm standing outside the classroom for an intermediate algebra class. Every seat is taken. There are students sitting on the windowsills and students standing in the hallway. Our classes are basically completely full. They're 100% full. And it's maddening for us because we pride ourselves in access. Dr. Chui Sang is the president of Santa Monica College. He told me he can't make more seats available because the state keeps cutting his budget. So last spring, Dr. Sang proposed something new. He called it Advance Your Dreams. Instead of waiting in line, they, they have access to their class right away. Here's how it would work. The school would open up new sections of the hard-to-get classes, but they would cost more in some cases 400% more. But with the extra funds, the college would then have the means to make more seats available in the regular sections. For Dr. Sang, 
Advance Your Dreams was very progressive. It's like a Robin Hood system. Those who can afford it can pay a little higher and the excess revenues then can help subsidize those who cannot afford the same price. I'd like to call it Advance Your Schemes. Student body president Harrison Wills didn't find anything progressive about Dr. Singh's plan. They were dividing up the campus and they were saying some courses will be available at normal cost, which is $36 a unit. But we're going to create another tier of the same classes for $180 per unit. So what you're going to have is a competing group of people applying for the, the cheapest classes. And then those that don't get it, those that can afford it, will go to the second tier. And so what that means is that that means you have a society where people are advancing based upon their ability to pay. In order to access the new classes, though, poor students would be forced to take out loans or win scholarships. This, Harrison Will says, would completely change Santa Monica College. The community college is the greatest social equalizer in California, period. SMC is one of California's wealthier community college campuses. But still, Harrison Wills told me there's a large segment of the student body living below the poverty line. I'm not talking like, you know, struggling working class. I'm talking about poverty. I'm talking about hunger. I mean, I know students who are living in their car, and they said that still they're actually able to come to SMC and they have hope. When the Santa Monica College Board of Trustees met to approve a summer pilot program for Advance Your Dreams last April, Harrison Wills and a number of concerned students showed up to protest. I was there to have my voice heard and to share the concerns that other students had. But there was not enough room to accommodate the large number of students who all wanted to speak. A confrontation broke out with the campus police. Things just got out of hand fast. I got thrown on the ground and I heard screaming and pushing and I heard the pepper spray go off within like, I mean, it was like 15 seconds. We want, we want, they pepper sprayed us. The pepper spray incident was a victory for the protesters. The ensuing media blitz led California's Chancellor of Education, Jack Scott, to order Santa Monica College to shelve the Advance Your Dream program. On the night of the protest, Harrison Wills says Dr. Sang angrily dressed him down. He's like, this isn't what I expected from you. I was disappointed at him personally and also at the stand that he took. Dr. Sang is still baffled by the outcry. Freedom of choice is a fundamental right that we have in the United States. And, and in, in, this, in this system, when you tell someone that, yeah, you have money, but I cannot allow you to make a, a, a free choice because it's not fair. That's, that's just insane. Advance your dreams, Dr. Sang told me, is not a two-tiered system. Who can say that this is for the elites when you only have to pay $600 for, uh, for a class compared to uh, uh, $2,000 for a class in, uh, in the private sector or even in another public school? This is not a two-tiered system. I don't know how you can't call it a two-tiered system. Michelle Pilati is a community college educator and the current president of the Academic Senate for California Community Colleges. The idea of having sort of these two, for lack of a better word, classes of students, students who can afford courses and students who, who can't, um, really creates a disparity. And you could potentially have a system where if you don't have the money, you don't get a course. And, and that's, that's not what we're all about. California's state college system has offered a first-class education for generations. 
There are exclusive institutions like UC Berkeley and UCLA, but the UC system was designed to be accessible to everyone through its community colleges like Santa Monica. Two-tiered initiatives, critics claim, subvert the mission of accessible higher education. Our, our problem, first and foremost right now, is that the state's not funding us adequately. If we create a revenue stream that allows some colleges to bring in extra dollars to support more of what the state's supposed to be funding, it then creates a disincentive for the state to fund any of the colleges. And, you know, the whole idea of having this huge system that we have is to make education affordable to everyone. Two bills recently put forward at the state level would have made it possible for all community colleges in California to offer two-tiered tuition. Both bills were defeated. But according to Michelle Palati and Dr. Sang, the idea is just on hold for now. As long as we have um, funding issues that lead to the restriction of access, those who believe a two-tiered system is an answer um, will try again. We're going to come back to consider this program again at an appropriate moment. Please continue to hold. Please continue to hold. Please remain on the line. Technology renders most of the lines we now wait in invisible. But take a journey across America and you will see a lot of people paying their way to the front of the line. Please continue holding. Is this idea of the priority queue, though, that one can pay a fee to jump the line, consistent with American values like fairness, opportunity, and equal access? Please continue to hold. Maybe so. There is another American value, the freedom to choose. And when fairness, opportunity, and access become options for anyone who chooses to pay, then the priority queue is an American queue. Please remain on the line. But here is my question. If you can't afford the priority queue, are you still in line for the American dream? Please continue waiting. Please continue waiting. Please continue waiting. I was sober for two full days, and I tried my best, but sobriety, uh, what do you do then, you know? So this is why you sound so terrible. You're back on the crystal meth. I have a condition that's called atostomatitis. The entire tongue is one big tanker sore, all the way down my throat. It's hard for me to talk. Peter, I don't understand why you would do this. What's so hard to understand? The problem was that there was no plan on what to do with me once I simply detoxed. That is so not the problem. Oh, you're such a know-it-all. You people, you don't have the experience. Peter, I have first-hand experience. I've been recording the whole thing. I'm a witness to you flushing your life down the toilet for meth. Well, I disagree. I think my life was out of control anyway. That's why I started doing It wasn't, drugs. though. You were doing great. No, no, no. You don't know. When I was fired by Central Casting and KXOU, 
that had nothing to do with the drug. That's it crazy. Didn't. You're crazy to think that. Yeah, but you're, you know, you want to avoid cliches. No. Not everything you hear is, is true. I'm telling you my experience. No, you're deluded. Crystal meth is the reason your life sucks. No, it, it, crystal meth actually worked for me for about eight long years. Yeah. Crystal meth was my only friend. It kept me from being lonely and depressed. It worked. It wasn't like one of the antidepressants that the doctor prescribed that didn't work, but just made me gain 40 pounds. I'm telling you the truth. The reason why I took it was because it worked. So you've learned nothing. Absolutely nothing. I learned one thing. What? Drug addicts are the most maligned people on earth. (laughs) People don't, there's no sympathy. You know, I was not a sympathetic character when I told the police I was carjacked. They just wanted to arrest me. Yeah, I know. I know. It's so hard to get sympathy from a cop when you're all methed out and talking crazy. Well, you know. But hold on a second. You got carjacked? Yes, I was carjacked. By who? This nice girl named Karen, who claims she's from Belize. She was a crack whore. But wait, why do you have this crack person in your car? The story is really long. I don't know. If you really want the long version? Peter, how did she get in your car? The longer story. I don't know if you can fit it in your program. Uh, just tell me what happened. She wanted to go get some crack. This is what happened. Oh, my God. And I didn't want to go get crack. So I stopped at the coffee place. But I didn't think that she would carjack me. Peter, how did you get in this situation? I don't remember. Oh, man. It, it, this is what happens when you are high on bus. Everything's going fine, right? Super exhilarating, right? You know something's wrong. You have to get out of it, right? But everything's still under control, right? And then when you realize your car is gone and you just got carjacked, instantly... You crash. It's called a buzzkill. <laughs> but you crash in the most psychotic way imaginable. When I saw her go down the street, I had an absolute mental breakdown. I could, I had no money, no keys, no cell phone. I didn't know who to call, and I was isolated. I was wandering the streets of Los Angeles for two straight days, disoriented. Moaning loudly, talking to myself. I I don't even know what to say. What are you going to do now? I'm going to rehab. For how long? Until they let me go. I'm going to stay there until they help me come up with a plan of what I'm supposed to do now that I'm sober. Otherwise, it's a waste. So... What can what can I do to help? I need to find a good book. The thing I learned in rehab, you need to have your own book, your own music. They won't let you do anything. They take away your belt and your shoelaces, that whole thing, you know. You have to have wireless headphones. What kind of junkie owns a pair of wireless headphones? Some people in Los Encinas actually were in there before, and they knew how to do it. I saw them. 
and they were not without music, and I was, and it sucked. I can't live without the music. Well, I'm not going to send you a pair of wireless headphones, but I am willing to go on Amazon right now and pick out a book for you. So tell me what you want. I want to read um, some kind of maybe existential thing that's inspiring but not in a hokey Oprah way, you know, titillating. Ring? Fucked up lives. No. Not Oprah. I think they would inspire me. Self-help? Self-help is no good. They always want you to find God. There is no God. Okay. Negative self-help? I was running stories about uh, homos and nappas. It's big with the homos. It's passing. It's the gay drug. And it's sex. Okay. Homosexual crystal meth inspiring, yeah. not self-help. You know, you're, you're totally ruining my Amazon algorithm, by the way. You do understand <laughs> that. <gasps> oh, God, man. You know I can hardly talk. Oh, wait. Wait. I think I got something. What? It's called Meth Equals Sorcery. Know the truth. Sorcery? Oh, yeah. Witchcraft? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. You know, you can't rely on anybody. What are you talking about? I'm trying to find you a book so I can send it to you at rehab. Uh, No, 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 you have to trust me on this one. It's about a man who escapes the devil and meth through dancing. What a waste of meth, dancing. Well, I have a very good feeling about this one. And plus, it is only 79 cents. And it's a top meth book. It's such a special drug. All right, well, I'm adding this to the cart. And, uh, you know, let's see. Maybe this book will be the thing that turns your life around. This episode of Too Much Information was called Bricolage, and it was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with a lot of help from a lot of folks. And you can find out all the details on each of the segments at wfmu.org You're listening to WFMU East Orange WMFU Mount Hope in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at wfmu.org Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show Tony X!
Your love for me is stronger than stains, stronger than stains. I know I feel no pains, cause your love is stronger than stains, stronger than stains. Knight in armor on the white horse. We don't know. And you're listening to WFMU. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And who do we have in the studio today? Hello, who? Are you? Hi, I'm uh, Russell Keith Kwan, and I'm looking for a job. Hello, Russell Kwan. Welcome to the Nardwara Human Serviette Radio Show. Howdy. Thank you for having me. So today, guest DJing on the Nardwara Human Serviette Radio Show. What do you got for us, and what did we just hear? Uh, that was uh, Procter and Gamble's Ajax and the Cleansers, uh, stronger than dirt. It's a, it's an endearment to a, a man to a girl that his love will be uh, withstand the beatings <coughs> and the love that love will in turn endure and it endured all the way to a recording that and one of your bands the mummies did and when you shake the uh, white powder out and it gets wet and it turns blue you'll know you're using the right cleanser russell kwan who exactly are you though who exactly are you what would people know you from doing you're spinning yeah. records on a nardwara human serviette radio show you spin records a lot of time out of san francisco are you out of san francisco or are you out of oakland or berkeley uh, am i saying this all wrong uh yeah i live in castro valley it's 37 miles east of uh, san francisco but i can go there once in a while but it has to be uh, after they forget about the grease fire that i started at the mcdonald's uh, couple of weeks ago i happened to throw a match in the cook's hair where are the good places to get food in san francisco like you've mentioned casper's hot dogs oh uh, yeah actually casper's is a east bay only thing casper's hot dogs is uh tops for hot dogs because they got a skin on it and then you bite into it and the blood oozes out and then uh, for hamburgers is vowels and hayward it's also an east bay thing i also saw you gave props to the quick way drive-in and caesar's chicken what are those places like oh yeah caesar fried chicken is italian styled fried chicken but uh sadly they've left us for uh, other the kfc actually took them over and uh quick way i have to give a uh, it, although it was a place that was uh, popular when I was a kid because my dad knew a cook there. So we used to get free food, I think. But uh, now it's turned into kind of a not-so-good fast food place anymore, unfortunately. It looks cool, but 
food's bad. And speaking of family, we have Kane's cousins coming up right now. Please explain. What do we have coming up now, Russell? Oh, yeah. Kane's cousins have a, an original song. This beat group, Kane's cousins. <clears throat> uh, take your love and shove it on the Shove Love record label. I think they put out a lot of uh, releases... Or maybe not. <laughs> and you're going to hear it right now on the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show, Kane's Cousins, with special guest DJ, Russell Kwan. Hire me. Hire me. 